welcome to the Soccer Camp. It's time to break down the barriers. A show dedicated to creativity, adaptations, and purpose. Stupendous! The greatest moment I've seen in Premier League football. Real coaches. Real talk. Unbelievable! Real growth. Now, welcome your host, Roberto O.B. Hernandez. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of the Soccer Cap. Hope you guys have been enjoying the uh, content we're bringing you so far. Today, we have another special guest. We have John Melarisi. I hope I said that correctly. Um, John is a the former USL League One head coach of the South Georgia Tomenta FC. Um, he also has a lot, a lot of experience in the college coaching uh, world. Um, he served as a technical director for J- South Georgia. Uh, Georgia to Mensa FC. Um, it's kind of a tongue twister saying that all at once, but uh, John, we just uh, thank you for coming on and uh, welcome in and say hi, to, say hi to everybody. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, thank you, thank you. Um, real quick, if we could get started, uh, can you just give us a brief introduction on kind of where you grew up, uh, what got you into soccer, where'd you play, and uh, how you got into coaching? Yeah, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, uh, in a town right across the river from Charleston called Mount Pleasant. And uh, uh, it's interesting, it was, it was a small, budding little uh, soccer community. I don't, I don't know who got rolling, but uh, as a kid in the 80s, um, there, there was a great league. And it was a, a great opportunity for you to make a select team by age, I think it was 10 or 11. Um, and so I fell in love with the game. Played all the time. I played on ODP teams, played on the club teams, played on my high school team. Um, and uh, we were definitely uh, a big fish in a small pond. Um, soccer wasn't as competitive as it is now, but um, you know, I had a lot of success uh, as a player that ended up playing at Georgia Southern University and uh, a Division One school um, in Statesboro, Georgia. Um, had uh, a couple of really good years there where we were nationally ranked. And, um, you know, steadily, by the end of, I would say, my junior, senior year of, of college, uh, I started getting the itch to coach a little bit. And I'm not really sure that came from, I think it may have come from, you know, thinking about how much I love playing high school soccer and create a core with, with my teammates and playing for your school and big crowds. And, um, you know, I, I, I think I always, always loved um, that aspect of, the relational, the, um, the connection point that, that being part of the soccer team brought. And uh, I enjoyed influencing and investing in people, and I, and I felt like soccer was a great, um, I'd say, vehicle for that. And um, so I ended up jumping into an internship uh, with Nelligan College, um, um, where I was basically the assistant coach for everything. I was a goalkeeper trainer for both the men and women. I was the assistant coach for both the men and women. Um, so, you know, the positive with that is I got double the experience in a condensed time. I was running two practices or being part of two practices, having two different goalkeeping staffs, having two different schedules. And, um, and so it was, it was a, uh, a cannonball into the world of college coaching, and, and I loved it. Um, and, you know, we have, in the Milligan team, we had some great players, uh, both on the men, men and women's side, and from all over the world. We had a young lady that played for the Nigerian World Cup team. We had a guy on the men's team that 
and put it at a very high level in Brazil. And uh, this is a little NEI school in Middle Tennessee, or sorry, East Tennessee, um, and some of the best players I've ever seen. So it's very, very uh, inspiring for me to, to realize that like Division One isn't the only track. And so, and I believe in there. Um, being, being a, a graduate assistant coach back in my alma Georgia Southern, uh, and uh, was an assistant there for two years, got a master's. Um, 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 in sport management, and then got uh, a chance to coach the divisional level for two years, um, and then bounced from there. Got my first head, or sorry, assistant head coaching job at Gardner Webb University. Um, coached there for a couple of years, and was got a chance at age twenty six to be a head coach at Covenant College. Um, had a great experience there, and then went out to John Brown University for four years, four seasons. Good experience there, and then came back east and coached a few more D2s. And, and as I was coaching in that, I got my foot into the PDL uh, and loved it. And so I started spending every summer coaching for PDL teams, which led to me being hired at, at Tormenta FC, um, where we my job was to, to move the, the team from the PDL into the USL. Um, and so it was a, a long process of building the team over time and having some good PDL seasons and um, trying to build a club at the same time, where there was um, there was continuity between the youth academy and the first team, and it was a ton of work, and stepped away from that in December, um, and now have taken a hiatus of, of sorts and um, enjoying it and trying to get my head on straight again and see what the next project is. Wow, wow, wow! Sounds like you've done it all, especially that time where you had a you know, kind of do the assistant coach and goalkeeper coach on both sides of the program. That must have been a heck of a workload. But like you said, it's a it's a good learning experience. Um, you know, doing the transition from PDL to a professional club must have been a fun experience as well and seeing all the hard work pay off. Um, I know I got to see visit the facilities. It's definitely a unique facility there and what they're doing is something special. Um, it's pretty great what USL is doing, um, giving more and more opportunities for these players, you know, professional pathways. And I guess that's kind of the question I have for you. You spent a lot of time in the college game, some time in the, what I like to call the, you know, the organized, very, very, very organized professional, um, semi-pro, uh, you know, leading into professional and now professional. What is the biggest difference between the college game and what is now the USL League Two, but was PDL. Uh, the obvious difference is it's all about soccer all the time. You know, there's there's you know as a college coach, there's a more holistic approach to developing the student athlete, right? Um, in the PDL, it is a you have so much freedom in USL Two, what they call it now, like you said, to um, um, Make it what you want to be. So some some PDLs, you know, you train twice a week. You show up in a game if you want to carry a roster of thirty five, and you know, it's just toss a ball out, not a big deal. Um, some, like where I coach, it's, it's Kings Warriors, and then at Tormenta, um, the ownership group wanted to win. They wanted to be competitive. They wanted good people. They wanted in, they wanted to invest in the community around them. And so it may have been semi pro, but it was we carried ourselves like professional teams. And so what you were doing is taking a player who may have been very comfortable in his university environment, being one of the best players on the team, and then you're trying to raise the bar. You're trying to throw them into the deep end a little bit. 
Um, and so what we would try to do with my two PDL stops was, was try to run sessions and, and, and have, um, you know, tactical influences that, that were very similar to what other USL teams and MLS teams were doing. And so when they stepped into our training session on that first day, it was like, oh, okay, this is a step up and all, everybody's good around me. Um, and if I want to play, I have to compete every single day. And I think that's the biggest difference is most college, even, even top ACC and even where you are with Stanford and other schools, you know, if you're the best eight players, chances are you're always going to be in the 11. If you had a bad week of training, you're, you're still going to be in the 11. Um, when you have 16 to 18 players that are as good, if not better than you, that's not the case. Um, so it's creating that environment where it, it's a high performance environment um, that's a little bit more cutthroat um, and intense and demanding than I think the college game can provide. Um, so it, you know, I, it was a coming from college soccer and knowing what my players would have needed um, in that environment also helped me, right? Because I, I knew when I sent my players out to a PDL team. I wanted some things in place and I wanted them to come back better. And I, and I took that personally. I wanted, when we attracted players to our PDL team, I wanted them to go back to the college environments better than they came in. Yeah, no, and I think that's a good growing experience for the players as well, right? Um, and it kind of helps the college game elevate their their level. I think it's very important mm-hmm. how you kind of said in the college game, I think a lot of listeners or a lot of coaches forget that you are developing the student athlete as well it's very student oriented um and it's a lot about the academics not only the soccer right so so a lot of times the coaches are having a balance you know being an academic advisor you know helping these kids uh, figure out their career after soccer or if it may be with soccer um and balancing that world you know because a lot of times players come into the college world only expecting to do soccer and not really academics, right? And then there's a whole nother world. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I know that that's the biggest difference between the college and the USL uh, League 2, or was PDL. Now, from there, transitioning into a professional club. Transition to a professional club, was there a lot of the gr- core group of players sticking together, or did they kind of not meet the expectations of the level of the new uh, standard? Uh, both. So... You know, when I was at Tormenta, we had two seasons in the PDL, and my third and fourth season were in the USL. Um, and, you know, in my first season, 2017, we were already beginning to identify players that we thought fit the mold of what we wanted for 2019. So we were, we had been, we built the team for, for two years prior to the, the first pro match. Um, so in that first year, we rolled over a handful of players into the 2018 team. Um, and that 2018 team was very good. They were undefeated in the regular season. Um, you know, a great group of players. And from that team, I think, and I'm like, this is off the top of my head, I think at least 16 of them ended up playing professionally um, out of a 23-man roster. Mm-hmm. Um, and 12 of them we kept in-house. Um, so four of them we didn't keep, but they ended up landing somewhere else and signing. Um and then that back half of the roster uh, didn't just, just didn't quite make the cut, but they were close. Um, so, you know, that was always the plan, especially in 2019, is how many guys can we identify that are going to be graduating, that are going to be finishing in December of 2018, and ready to, to, to play.
play uh, professionally January 2019. Um, and so there, it took a lot of work to identify that trajectory of these players. And then it was very useful to all of a sudden we, you know, we had a culture in place. We had some, some guys with experience with living in a small town of Statesboro and, um, you know, the, the benefits and perils that come with that. And, um, we were to get off to a great start. And, and I 100% think our success in the first two thirds of the season was very, very connected to the, the group we were able to transition and matriculate into a professional team in 2019. Awesome. Um, one question for you from a coaching perspective, was it kind of a shock kind of like I'm here at the professional level now and did you change your coaching style in any way or was it I've been preparing for this my entire career and my coaching style is going to stay the same because it's something I believe in? Man, that's a good question. Um, well, I think as a coach, and, and, and this could bleed into a whole other podcast to be honest, <laughs> is, that, is that you have to back yourself um, you have to believe in yourself and you can't be everything to everybody. Um, you, you, you can't just because Man United plays this way and Chelsea plays that way and Barca plays that way. Um, doesn't necessarily, it may not fit your team and you may not fully believe in it. Right. And, and soccer is a game of opinions and especially at the professional level, everybody in the locker room is a mini pep or punch, right? Like to everybody, uh, Pochettino, like they, they all, you know, a lot of YouTube coaches these days, right? And um, you, you have to have a clear idea of how you want to play. And so, um, and I don't mind sharing this. I think where I made a mistake at the professional level is I began to to adapt my philosophy too much too fast, right? I, I. You know, how I won games for years in the PDL is exactly how we won games in the first two-thirds of the season um, of, of our USL season. Uh, we were first or second in the league. I think we were eight wins, three losses, five ties, I think, and, and we're doing great. Um, then we had a bunch of injuries. Um, and, you know, we wanted to play a little bit more of a attractive style of play. And, you know, what I decided to do is, is to try to enhance that. Well, you start enhancing that and you start losing players, then results start slipping. And and the reality is professional players, you could be the greatest guy in the world and have a great culture, but they're going to follow you if you're winning and if you're getting them better. And if you don't have either one of those, or if you lose those, you've lost them. Right. And so I think for a coach that's transitioning into the first head coaching professional job is stick to your philosophy be stubborn, be humble, uh, you know, be willing to learn and to listen and to adapt, but you can't be everything to everybody. You need to stick to your philosophy, back yourself, and then over time, beginning to adapt and grow. Um, you know, sports psychologists also always talk about a growth mindset. Um, it's very easy as a coach to get stagnant in what you've always done. I think you should always check and recheck in, in the off season, even during the season, find new ways to intent enhance your style of play, but figure out what you want to believe in it, what you believe in and how you want to play and stick to it. Um, cause I think if you go into it, cause my first game, you know, I look over and there's John Harps, right? I'm coaching against John Harps. I'm like, Oh, mm-hmm. used to watch him as a kid, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but I think you're so focused on the moment, um, 
that it's a game, right? And it's just, it, I think you have to be able to compartmentalize and, and focus on the task at hand and not be blown away from the moment. Um, but at the same time, every now and then peek up and be like, holy crap, this is freaking awesome. Um, and then get back to work again. I yeah. think you got to be able to enjoy it. You have to be able to enjoy it. Because um, when you stop enjoying it, then the game becomes, the professional environment can become a burden uh, instead of a joy. Um, and so I think there's a balance, right, of, of getting the job done, grafting, getting after it, but also having a joy to your work every single day. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. No, it definitely does. Uh, there's two kind of things that popped into my head is, like you said, you got to find your philosophy your your style that you want to play as a coach because you know the Pep Guardiola's the Jurgen Klopp's the um Cholo Simeone's these guys you know a lot a, a big reason why they're successful is because the players can feel their passion and how much they believe in what they do right the Marcelo yep. Bielsa's yep. um and uh, along the way if they would have you know changed it just you know to kind of mm-hmm. you know to adapt all the time um of course these guys are learning but they stuck to their guns and it's a big reason why they have all this success right a lot of people hate Cholo Simeone for the way he plays but to be able to play like that to get those players to buy in is something special in itself Mm -hmm. you know it may not be the best Mm -hmm. attractive style but it definitely is something in itself um but it's still beautiful in its own way exactly organized unit that runs and same thing with Delcia's team, they run. And that in itself is inspiring to watch. Right? Yeah. To see these guys committed, so committed against the ball. Um, and they know that if they if they pull out of a tackle, if they don't press or repress or recover with everything they have, Simeone's waiting for them. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right? Like he's, he's waiting for them. Um, so it could be out of fear more than anything else. But it is... It is beautiful to watch. It is inspiring to watch a group of players be that organized and that determined, and that and that's a direct reflection on the manager, one hundred percent. Yeah, and when you watch like uh, the few clips that you're able to see inside Atletico's training, it's that they're that intense at training. You yeah. know, the defensive drills—they're yes. flying all over the place. They're, you know, they're. Mm-hmm. It's like literally the Champions League final at their practice, and I think mm-hmm. that's to be able to get that out of your players is pretty intense and wonderful. Um, and kind of the second it is, thing as a coach, uh-huh. as a coach, though, that may not be you, right? You may not yeah. be, you may not have the, the personality of Simeone. And so you have to figure out your style, right? And I think that's where young coaches have to take it all in and, but really know who they are. You got to know who they are because you can't just re, you can't just be Simeone. Like that, that uh-huh. guy's one of the guys. You can't just be Pep, right? You, you have to be you, the best version of you. And then, but also understand that you don't know everything either. The game, the game's always going to teach you something. Um, but you have to. One thing I like about what Jesse Marsh says um, is, you know, he thinks he doesn't like the idea of buy-in. He, he talks it and he calls it internal belief. Um, and the two things that create internal belief are tactical details and mentality, right? And that that comes from coaching. And and how you get there, that's 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 a personal journey each coach has to figure out. Yeah, and I think that's like right. What you said is, of course, we can learn from these coaches, 
but everyone has a different personality, right? Um, and like you said, just because you're not the screamer doesn't mean you might not be successful. There's many successful coaches who are actually right. quiet and just, you know, scream when they need to. And then there's the Cholo Simeones. So like you, that was one thing that I had to learn as a very young coach is I was trying to mm -hmm. go out there and force these type of sessions, you know, out of myself because, uh, you know, this is what mm -hmm. I see on TV. You know, this is what I see from other coaches. And then I realized it's like, that's not my personality. And, you know, the moment I realized mm -hmm. that, I think I developed more as a coach and really appreciated the game. Um, it's as simple as, you know, I've been on coaching education courses where they say, don't have anything in your hand, a penny. Uh, don't put your hands in your pocket. Da, 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 all these different things. But then I go out and I watch these professional level coaches, high level college coaches, um, professional academies. A lot of times they have a, a bib in their hand. They have a water bottle in their hand. They have their, but it doesn't mean they're not coaching you know they're focused on what's going on right. and what's going on at hand um and i think a lot of times we get carried away with like the little details of this is how you do it rather than just go out there and enjoy it right um and kind of building on top of that yeah. that that enjoyment is something that we forget like you know it's a big goal of mine to make it first team and i'm sure it, it was yours right and even like mm -hmm. these players that make it professional i think a lot of times they forget we forget that this is our dream you know, we're living our dream. Right. Of course, you're going to put in the work and work hard, but you also got to enjoy what we're doing, right? That's kind of why we're blessed right. to be able to do coaching full-time, to be able to play full-time, um, you know, just to be able to hop on this podcast and speak about soccer is a blessing. Mm -hmm. 100%. And I think, you know, the advice I'd give a young coach, because that kind of seems to be the direction of this, this chat right now, is it's very easy for your passion to be taken advantage of, right? Um, mm. And I think it is a business, though. And, and professional soccer is a business. It is, you know, there's two kinds of, of leadership styles. There's transactional, there's transformational, right? Transformational is really about the holistic investment in a person. Transactional is about you score goals, you get paid, you keep you keep on the team. You do those two things, you're out. I don't, we don't talk about anything else, right? Mm. The overwhelming majority of the professional world, professional soccer world, is transactional, period. So if you go into a job needing it, um, I read, um, oh, what's the name? Michael, uh, sorry, Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights. Um, it's, it's an easy read. It took like three days. It's kind of out there, but it's, it's an interesting read. And he talks about his time as a, as a Hollywood actor where the times that he was needy, he never got the part. There's a difference between needy and wanting something, right? And if you become needy, what you end up doing is you start making concessions on your own personal boundaries and values, and then you've lost yourself, right? So um, I love something that, that Greg Berhalter said about how he figures out where he's going to take a job. And I think Delcia takes this as well or talks about this as well, that there's three things that have to be in place. Does he have the time to complete the project? Does he have the, the control to execute what he needs to execute? And does he have the resources behind you to accomplish the goals of, of the ownership group? Because if you don't have all three, you're not going to be successful. But for young and dumb coaches like me, I'm going to jump and I don't care. I, we may have the lowest funding in the league. I don't care. I'm still going to find a way. Okay, yep, that's a, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find a way. Okay, that... You know, th there's easy ways for you to jump into a situation that 
<laughs> is you're not going to be successful. And so what I would tell a young coach is pick, you may get an opportunity, but be very, very, very pragmatic about where and why and who you're going to be working for. Because if your philosophy and your values don't match with the clubs, it's going to end poorly, period. It's going to end poorly. Um, so, you know, that's something to think about for sure. Yeah, I think that's great advice because, yeah, I mean, most of us young coaches would hop at any opportunity, right? Rather mm -hmm. than looking at, is this going to help us grow, um, you know, personally as a coach? And, you know, um, can we actually accomplish what we're looking for? Um, so that's great advice. And kind of to build on top of that, obviously, we can use this at all levels. But Julian Nagelsmann speaks about, you know, coaching is 70% building relationships and managing players and 30% tactics. I might have got that quote slightly off on the percentage. But what do you think about that and what he says is at the professional level more about managing the players than it is tactics no i fully agree with him um and i actually have that quote right in front of me because it, it, it I, I look at it a lot um he said 30 percent of managing is tactics 70 percent is social competence every player is motivated by different things and needs to be addressed accordingly at the professional level the quality of the players at your disposal will ensure that you play well within a good tactical setup if the psychological condition is right. Now he says it in a very <laughs> sexy way, of course. <laughs> um, but, but he, I think he's spot on. I think the modern player is different over the last 12, 15 years, even six to eight years. I've had to adapt how I, um, engage the players that I coach. Um, and I think you, as I alluded to earlier, I think I personally believe in my personal values that you have to be a relationship oriented coach. You have to put the person first because if you treat them like a piece of meat, then that's just all the relationship's going to be. You're never going to get them. And it's not a means to an end. I think it's the right thing to do, right? If I'm going to coach a player. Um, you know, I, I think what did Doc Rivers say that I saw? I think he said something that when he coaches a pro basketball player, he coaches them to who they could be not to who they are. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I may have butchered it, right? And, and I think you, it, it makes you very vulnerable as a coach. It does, right? If if you put um, yourself out there and you want to engage and invest on a human level, now with professional boundaries, right? You can't be like best friends, but in a mentoring role and try to really get beyond that player's walls and figure out what makes them tick, you know, if they've got family issues, personal issues, whatever it is, that they can come to you. Um, it leaves you open and gets your heart broken, right? Because, you know, it's a, it's a cutthroat business, but I think it's the way you have to operate. Um, and so if you have the right environment for your team, if you have the right culture for your team, if you if there's trust, right, and as the All Blacks talk about, safe vulnerability is a big thing for them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to be able to own their mistakes, I blew it, I apologize, and the guys are like, yep, you blew it, we love you, we're, we're going to move on. And there's that way of like, taking ownership of, of failures and successes together. And it's not every man for himself. I 100%, you have, you have to have that kind of environment if you want a, a high performance result. Now, with that being said, the 30%, um, you know, alluding back to what I said about Jesse Marsh, if you want, if you want that internal belief, you have to have the right structure. You have to have the right, you, you got to pick the right 
system style formation details out of possession in possession you know your controlling phase your transition phases you've got to get that all right you have to if you want your guys to believe in you um and to and to have that internal belief so you know it's similar to what jesse marsh said about the two things of one being um you know tactical details the other being mentality and you could you could argue all day 50 50 60 40 70 30 I would agree with Nagelsmann, but at the same time, if you de-emphasize your your details, then you're going to lose them, right? So I, I believe in you as a human being, but then when you show up at training and then you, you pick some uh, some details in your tactics that aren't working, you're going to lose a locker room. So it's both and, not either or. And I think the best teams in the world are that 70-30. I would say Liverpool's that way. Let me, let me Klopp is a relationship-orientated coach, right? Um, if you read about Pep, he is. Right? He's a sorry, he's a genius, but he's he also connects with his players. Now he's not afraid to kick him the curb when he has to, but he also connects with his players. Um, Ancelotti is a great example. Great example. When you talk about, if you read some stuff on Ancelotti, players that have played, played for him, talking about how warm he was and how much he knew that players knew that Ancelotti cared for them. That, that that layer of safety for a player is important, but man, it's a tightrope because you also have to make really hard decisions. You got to drop them. You may not renew their contract. You may cut them. Like at the same time, like there's that business element, and there's a very, 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 very difficult um, road to walk. And you know, it's a balance that I think every coach has to figure out as they go and stick to their own values. Yeah, I think. Uh... That's very, very important. Like you said, uh, kind of players want to know how much you care about them, right? Do you think it is mm-hmm. more important on relationships at the pro college level or is that much more to develop the relationships at the youth soccer level where, you know, these players really do trust in their coach full heartedly and they're not playing for the millions of dollars or thousands of dollars, that, whatever it may be? I think you coach the same way across the board. Just my my personal opinion, um, you know, I have an opportunity to maybe take a U seventeen academy team, um, um, and I'm going to coach them the same way. Now, I may not require as much from them, um, but I'm going to be a relationship oriented coach. And then, if all of a sudden tomorrow I'm the manager at Chelsea, which it won't be, I would be the same way. Right? I would try to. I, I will always put the person in front of the player. That's just who I am as a coach and what I always do because ultimately, as important as we think we are, as important as we think the game or the season is, 15 years from now, nobody gives a crap. Yeah. <laughs> nobody cares. Um, but the best things, are, you know, I'm 42 and not that old, but, you know, a lot of my former, I, mean, I had a great conversation with what, my first captain from my Covenant College soccer team and I was 26 you know, he was only 20, I was only four years older than he was. He's a doctor. Um, he's got four kids. He's, he's living a great life and investing in others. And we were reminiscing and talking about stuff. Dad, you know, a couple of players from John Brown texted me recently, their first time dads. I had some of the best things that I've experienced as a coach is, hey, coach, um, I'm going to be a father. Just want to let you know. Like stuff like that, right? So if, you, if you're all business all the time, they ain't going to text you that. You're not going to get that window into really important moments in life. So I think for me, it's the long game. You know, I may 
you know, don't prioritize the wrong thing. And, and, and I lose some games in the short term. You know, what matters to me most is what, you know, what, what the long game looks like. Um, so for me, I think you've got to be the same across the board. And the big word for me is authenticity. Because if I'm running a U17 session in one way, and then I'm running the first team session in a different way, you know, in terms of my personality, um, then I'm not authentic. Now, I may demand less or more. I may engage differently based on that. This doesn't mean they're not adaptable, but you can't wholesale change your values for for your coaching. Uh, that's very awesome about um, being able to coach the same way from all the different levels. And I think it kind of prepares you, right? Even before you get your big opportunity, being able to coach that way. So when the opportunity comes, it's not a whole new challenge or a whole new step up. Um, you're kind of just used to right. doing it. Um, and kind of, if you don't mind speaking about it, obviously some youth academies go three, four times a week, but most of us have to train two, twice a week and colleges are able to go four or five times a week. But what's a typical week look like? Um, you know, do you guys go hard for the full five days? Obviously you have games in between. Um, do you change topics every single day or do you kind of have a topic or two topics per week? No, that's, that's a great question. Um, and it's something I wrestle with, honestly. So, what we did this past season is we had a very specific tactical periodization um, where we worked very closely with our sports science folks, um, and we had a you know a green, yellow, red uh, format, right? Green being a light day, yellow being moderate, red being a high intensity workload. Um, and so, what we would do if the match was on Saturday, they would have the day off on Sunday. Monday would be a recovery day, a lot of film work. Uh, it'd be a green day. Um, Tuesday would be a yellow day, uh, moderate, right? Wednesday, we'd hit them really hard. Um, Thursday would be another yellow day. Friday would be a green day. Saturday play. So they're only having two red days a week, right? That way you're not having too much of an accumulation of fatigue. And so the trick there is, okay, what, what kind of practice topics are you putting in there? Um, you know, and, and that's because now you've given yourself a structure that preserves their legs for the long run. It's a 32-game season over nine months. You, you can't blow them out early. Um, and so it's a marathon, not a sprint. So how you go about it each week, you have to be very measured in, in how long and hard you're going in. And sports data has, has changed everything. It used to be the eyeball test. Of like, okay, he's looking a little leggy. We made it arrest him. Now it's, now his heart rate is, you know, 12% higher than his normal average. He's showing signs of fatigue and you shut him down. Like, that stuff is just gold for us now. Um, and so how you, how you integrate your coaching topics in there. Um, and this is, you know, honestly, this is a, a process that I'm going through. Um, I used to, you know, just have kind of a standard structure of like, we'd have a technical preactivation, um, and then we'd have some kind of topic based Rondo that would have some kind of activity in the game. Um, and then, you know, what I did for a while was it was just easier it seemed to have a topic right so we if if monday was recovery day tuesday we want to work on defending it in the four moments we pick one of the four moments maybe tuesday was defending maybe wednesday was transition to attack maybe thursday was attacking um friday would be light and set pieces and things like that saturday play um 
But as I've, as I've researched a lot of the last five, six months since I left home and I've really kind of evaluated, like, okay, how, you know, was that the best way? Some coaches coach towards an identity, not to an, a topic. Does that make sense? Like it's, they, they, you were using the example um, of Athletico. He coaches to an identity every single day more than he coaches a, a specific topic. Mm-hmm. So coaching school is like, okay, you're working on transition to attack. So, you know, your first phase is this, your second phase is this, your third is this, fourth is this, and then coaching points are all limited to this coaching topic, right? And then you do that right, you get your, your badge, and then you go try it. Well, the reality is that's important, but the players sometimes don't like coaching school sessions yeah. right? they want to get going they don't want to be micromanaged and they don't want you making many stops um so i think where i am now is i would definitely have a structure but i think what would be in place every single day would be our identity our non-negotiables in you know against the ball and with the ball um and you know for me for years i was more of a mid-block counter team and then i started to really value possession um, and build-up play and building through the thirds. Um, and then over the last couple of years, I've seen the real importance of having a, a very organized pressing structure, not just to win the ball back, but to score goals. Because you can you can trigger transitions and score goals and, uh, from a pressing structure that, that win games for you. Um, and so how you train every single day has got to have an element to, if, if you're going to be a a transition orientated team, your rondos have to have a transition element. So instead of like a five V two or five V three, maybe a six V four with your four defenders, when they win the ball, they get four pug goals. They can go attack, right? In four different directions. Um, you know, it could be a five V three with two pug goals where those three, when they win the ball, they can go attack. So it makes the five have to repress. It makes the three have to win the ball and have an idea. So it's, 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 hammering in your identity every single day um, and keeping that competitive environment. And if I could go back and change anything, got Tormenta, I think I got too, I manicured our things too much. Um, I think I didn't allow enough time for the guys just to compete and play. Um, and I think that's the real trick of, of coaching is knowing your audience Coaching school may say this, but you may have 19 guys. That's just that's not a mold they fit in, and you have to adapt a little bit. Yeah, I think that's important. That you know, as a player, we we love to play, right? We want to play as much as possible, right. and we hate when coaches will step in. And I think sometimes as mm-hmm. coaches, we feel like, oh, I have to step in because I have to coach. Instead of, you know, uh-huh. using our different coaching tools and, you know, maybe coaching on the fly, maybe in between pulling a player side and speaking to them. But, yeah, I think you can kind of tell sometimes, you know, you're, you'll step in and the player's eyes roll back like, oh, here we go again. Uh-huh. Now we got to listen to him, you know. And and then I think there's yeah. sometimes where coaches step and they give a whole hour lecture in the middle of practice, uh-huh. you know, and it's, it should be something quick if you're going to step in. Um, and I think this involves even the youth game more, right? These kids need touches on the ball and if we keep stepping in every 30 seconds because we want to be the Pep Guardiola the Jurgen Klopp these kids aren't going to get maximize their time on the ball you know because we're we keep stepping in so it's kind of finding that that thin line of when to step in and when when to step out because these players want to compete and I think that's a, a good good uh aspect that you just mentioned um 
Yeah, and that's something that I was not good at. I'll be honest with you. It's something that if I could go back, um, you know, I would have more film sessions and individual sessions and talk about it because we, we, we filmed all of our trainings. Mm-hmm. So instead of making stops for everybody to hear, you know, make a few. Um, but, you know, you've got a match coming up and you've had only four days to train and you, there's, there's so many details to determine the result and you're scrambling to make sure that, okay, is my team prepared? Right, right before the match, you evaluate everything. Are they prepared? Yeah. Um, and I think that burden can push you to overcoach. Um, and I think you got to let some things go, man. Uh, you just got to trust your players and trust that your environment has been preparing them. You can't get everything in. You got to get some things in as best you can. Um, and I think my drive to get everything in sometimes made my sessions clunky and didn't not as enjoyable um, at the back end there. Yeah. That's a great learning opportunity for me, but uh, the modern player wants the coach to shut up <laughs> and <laughs> just let him go. Yeah, um, and I think that's the important thing. We're there to guide, uh, not to give every answer, right? Um, I think that's mm-hmm. my biggest weakness. Um, well, not biggest, but one of my biggest challenges is I like to give you know you teams you know last 15, 20 minutes a, a chance to just play. And I have to bite my tongue constantly because I want to step in. But if I'm constantly stepping in, these players aren't going to be able to think for themselves, you know, learn. And not only that, we're taking away the creativity of the game. And I think that's something we are faced with as a, um, you know, soccer coach here in the U.S. Because a lot of people are, um, hey, let's build out of the back. Let's keep possession. And we don't encourage the hey, you're in a 1v1 situation, take them on. You're in a 1v2. You know, we see it at the professional level all the time, even though 1v2 isn't the greatest situation. There's players like the Sterlings, the the Burners that can take them on and, you know, create something out of nothing. And we got to encourage that from time to time and not just scream at them, hey, pass the ball. I think uh, one of the, um, speaking with a buddy of mine uh, who, you know, was in the EPL for a while, he had a chance to go on trial with Arsenal, with Arsene Wenger. And he said a lot of times he would roll out the ball you know, small-sided game or maybe 11v11 and just say, hey, team one, you're down 1-0, you have a red card, play. And, you know, just giving them situationals and the teams had to figure it out. And I think, obviously, he's had a lot of success or had a lot of success in the EPL. And I think that's big time. We undervalue the the game at the end, you know? Let the game teach itself. Absolutely. Uh, you're spot on. You're spot on. I think the truly elite coaches in the world are able to get their tactical details across in a way that all their eyes are done and their T's are crossed, yet the players have felt like they've had a chance to compete and enjoy themselves all week. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a real gift of it, and I think it can be elusive for a lot of coaches. That's the real coaching, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And kind of building on that, obviously the professional game is is different from the youth game. But we're in a soccer culture here where we put a lot, a lot of heavy emphasis on technical work, right? Where for most part, when I go out to youth soccer clubs, they're running a lot, a lot of isolated technical practices um, versus opposed. And that's what I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. You know, we have Barcelona's methodology where it's, they rarely do anything technical. You know, it's all rondos, positional plays, SSPs, small-sided games. But I think there there does need to be a foundation at the youth game, right? We can't throw a kid in nothing but rondos if the kid has never touched a soccer ball. And that's that's the reality of it. Sometimes in club soccer, we have mm-hmm. kids that 
never played soccer or maybe not that good at passing. And although I love rondos, it's they. I think they need a little bit of a technical foundation before. So how can we make sure that players are learning a little bit of technical, but not just straight isolated work where they're not having a thing for themselves? Man, you're going to have hundreds of different opinions on this one. I'll <laughs> give you mine. Um, there are some that believe that individual repetitions, right? Mastering a surface of their foot. I coached with a guy that had a strong belief that like, you know, mastering this certain surfaces of your foot laces outside, inside through juggling, right. And getting a hundred touches or a hundred juggles in a row. Okay. You master that. Now you master this. And, um, you know, it definitely develops the, the individual skill set in first touch of a player. Um, but there's no pressure. There's nobody coming in to engage, right, and, and try to run the ball off them. So this others would say, well, then you need give them my UEFA course. It's it's all about it being realistic, right? Reality based learning is what they say over and over and over at UEFA. Reality based learning. So are you going to juggle a hundred times at center field? No, you won't. So under that methodology, they would ignore that. But I've seen benefits of both. So I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. And I think, you know, for me, the the practices that I got the most out of my players is when it was as close to the reality of a game. And so the the, the, the trick of a coach and teaching the player how to, at a very beginning level, say it's a 12-year-old, you know, passing, receiving, you know, maybe the warm-up is unopposed, but then getting them to pressure as soon as possible. Because you could do... 500, you know, receptions and passes with no pressure um, and do it well. And then do 10 with pressure and do it well. You've, you've gotten more of the 10 with pressure than the, than the 500 without, um, in my opinion. So I think as quickly as you can get them to opposed scenarios where now they have to, because if someone's engaging them, right, like you can't just take a first touch back into pressure and that's what you typically see with young players that have just been doing static passing and defend or passing and receiving is they receive a right back into pressure where there's some nuances, man. You may have to slide the ball out from under you and a little faint to you know get a little bit of an angle so you can pass the ball. And that's where Rondo's come in, all right? Now you get to improvise. And so I think you have to be able to um, find a way to do both and um, – so for me, I think you got to get him into opposed training as, as fast as possible. Limit the static, unopposed training. That's just me. Yeah. Would you recommend, or in your opinion, uh, maybe for let's give a scenario, U twelve, um, first ten minutes, maybe a isolated technical warm up. Um, you know, maybe they work on their first touch or second touch, whatever it may be, um, and then straight into a rondo. You know, something I think a lot of practices yeah. go too much. You know, thirty minutes unopposed um but maybe a quick five ten minute unopposed refresher and straight into a post so i would say a great way to warm the players up is some kind of you know circuit right an agility technical agility circuit uh, where it involves the ball it involves dribbling it involves some agility runs gets the heart rate up you know and, and it gets them going and then you get them right into some kind of a pose play um, for me if you look at the truly elite players across the world I guarantee you they didn't touch the ball on Tuesdays and Thursdays, right? They're playing all the time. Yeah, They're knocking them off their fence 
or the wall in the street or playing out in the streets or, you know, in, in Brazil, they just play, 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 play. Right. Um, and so I think if we really want to take a turn in this country, um, we have to find a way to encourage our players, especially at the youth level to go home and get on a ball. Right. That's, that's the time for unopposed playing. Right. And, it's rare to have a neighborhood pickup game where you can go play. Right? It's just tough to find. So I think in our specific arena in America, we got to get them in opposition and playing as much as possible um, because they just don't have that. They don't. They don't have a pickup game waiting for them when they get home from school, right? Like yeah. like most places in the world do. Um, so I think it. And then encourage them, man. Get a freaking ball and go against the wall and get a thousand touches a day. Really, and, and develop your. Your, your ability on the ball. And then when you come train, like we're going to get after it, we're going to play. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's hard to do. I think that's important because like you said, they can do juggling at home. They can do unopposed mm -hmm. work at home. And I think there, there is value to it, but I think especially, you know, when we're only training two days a week, it's kind of a, a, mm -hmm. uh, not the best you know maximization of our time. And I mean, you've seen it, you know, at Barcelona introductions, there's been players that, struggle to juggle but they're phenomenal on the field um mm -hmm. and it, it's a pretty pretty funny scenario um that kind of rolls out um no but thank you for sharing the opinion on on the technical versus uh opposed training i think it's one of the biggest debates we we currently have right because mm -hmm. even a lot of it's a it's a business there's a lot of private trainers out there that make a killing off oh, of yeah. it and it's just a it's a business out there it is, and that's a whole other podcast, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%, 100%. Um, my last, well, I have two more questions. One of the questions is, what is the biggest difference um, or what do you look for between a good player and a professional player? Because, you know, you'll go out at, you know, to a Sunday league game and there's some phenomenal players playing out there, but then you wonder why mm -hmm. they're not making a pro. So do you think it's, you know, a dedication or do you think it's a level of soccer IQ that makes a difference? So the way I did it and the way I look at it, it's, it's straight out of, um, Stephen Covey wrote a book called the speed of trust. And he talks about character and competence. And for me, you know, the competency of the player, technical speed, physical speed, mental speed, you know, like, can they make quick decisions or they, can they break down an opponent technically? Um, you know, are they quick enough, strong enough, fast enough? Um, they have enough agility, you know, the, the basics of a good player, right? Then there's the character. Um, and I think we can all, uh, I could list five players right now and you could that we probably grew up with that could have been great or that was coached, could have been great, but ended up mediocre or, or not in it at all anymore. And it's primarily because of their character and the choices they make. Um, and I think, you know, everybody has a story and everybody has, um, you know, uh, some, some benefits, uh, to where they grew up depending or, or, or adversities to where they grew up. But ultimately we're, we are ultimately responsible for the choices we make. We can't blame that on anything else. So I think for, for me, um, character is a big one, right? And, and it's little things, right? So I went, um, I took in a, a NISA game a few nights ago, Chattanooga FC against LA, I think LA Force. Yeah, LA called. Force. Um, right. So it's the first game I've watched in a while. And, um, you know, the, the body language is a big thing, man. 
big thing. You know, I'm not going to mention the team, but one team went down a goal and they freaking chest were out, chin was up, put the ball down, bang, right away, 1-1, one, one, right? Um, one team, when they went down, um, they just fell apart, right? And, and you could see it coming because of the body language of a few players, in my opinion. Um, and so, you know, when you evaluate a player, that's where the real trick is, is figuring out what, what's their story, right? Where they come from? Um, you know, and really doing the work on who they are as a person, because it's absolutely going to affect who they are as a player. It's going to affect your locker room. It's going to affect how they engage with your backroom staff, how they engage with um, your ownership group, how they engage the community and the places that I've coached. It's very important that our players get out in the community. So if a guy's a prick, um, you know, and he's representing your club, you're going to lose trust in the community. Um, and if he's a prick and you're trying to have a U17 come and watch him play and how he acts, now you've got a bad example, not a good example of how you want your youth academy players to be. Now you've got another problem on your hands. So I think you have to make that choice of, I've said it before, non-negotiables. And you don't always get it right. Some, you know, I, I can tell you right now, I misread some players at the professional level. Who I thought they were when I signed them and who I, who I know they are now after coaching them are very different. Some positive, some negative. Some I had too low of expectations for. Some I had way too high of expectations for. You don't always get it right, but you at least need to find a way to have a filter of, okay, who, what attributes of a, of a person do I want in my club, in my locker room, and what are the things I'm not going to tolerate? Now, that's at the professional level where you have a whole lot more time to make those choices. Sometimes, right, at the club level, it's just, you got it. You got 18 kids, and now you got to make it work. At the college level, you may not have that luxury, right? Like you may not be able to be as as picky uh, with with who you bring in the locker room. Uh, and sometimes at the pro level, you may take over a team midseason, and these aren't your players. And I've had that where I've inherited a team, and so now I've got to connect with guys that I would never have signed, and I still have to lead them, even though I don't necessarily believe in them, right? Um, but you have to find a way. Um, and, and I think that's the real gift of coaching. You're like, all right, this is my group. This is who they are. This is who I am. How, how can I build trust? Um, and it goes both ways, right? That's character and competence. Cause if you don't have, you know, your identity as a coach in place with your tactics, right? And if you don't have your crap together as a human, they're not going to follow you. Um, and so I think it's important that those two things are in place, character and competence. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's great. There's a, uh... <laughs> that was a great answer for what I asked. Um, I thought it was going to be a simple qu answer, but thanks. No, I really appreciate that. The last question that I have for you, I, I know we've covered a lot. Um, what is your motivation? What gets you going, um, you know, in coaching and in life? Man, that's a, I've had some time the last four or five months and stepping away from it to really analyze that. And, and, and the, the answer I'll give you is not a great one, but it's one that I think I'm pretty comfortable with, with where I'm now. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of times it's like coaching with like, okay, what is your why? What is this? What is that? And I think those are important questions to ask yourself. But I think you need to live and coach with a purpose. If you're a U12 coach, freaking be a badass U12 coach, right? If you're, if you're a Barca's coach, be an excellent coach for Barca, right? And it's, I think it's coaching with a purpose, right? And I think doing every little thing with a purpose. Um, and 
you know, for me, um, I, I'm a Christian, right? And so I, I believe that I am serving the Lord with my work and I'm serving others with my work. And so it's not about me, right? And I think, um, removing the ego and removing the self as much as you possibly can to build authenticity and to be who you really are as a coach, um, allows you to have freedom to invest in, in like we talked at the beginning, to have, have joy in, in, in what you're doing. And so for me, you know, my why for coaching is I want to be purposeful about the relationships that I build. I want to be, I want to challenge players to get better and to be better versions of themselves. Um, and so I think that's what inspires me to be a good coach. And that's what, you know, once time to run a session, that's what I get excited for. That's that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, like you said, as a believer, Jesus calls us to serve others, right? And I think as coaches, that's mm-hmm. exactly what we need to do to be able to serve others, mm-hmm. put others first. So I think that's that's awesome that your motivation kind of comes from there. And I know a lot of us during this pandemic have had a lot of uh, a big chance to really think about our why or our motivation, you know, because for mm-hmm. the most part, for a couple months, a lot of us were stripped of that title of coach, right? We weren't really out there. We weren't mm-hmm. doing much. Um, so I think that's good. And like like you said, it, it, it's important to find your, your why and uh, kind of know yourself. But, Absolutely. Yeah. Go, go ahead. No, no, that's my. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, thank you, John. I just want to thank you for coming on here. Um, you look honestly. Thank you for just being honest and real. That's literally what we want on this. We want coaches to come on here and help other coaches, players, um, you know, parents, whatever it may be, grow and understand it. And you came on here and you weren't, you know trying to cover up you said i got it wrong in this area i could have done better in this area and i think that's an important thing um because by you being honest there you know maybe a coach listening to this is like hey you know what i struggle in that area or i struggle in this area it's okay you know professional coaches don't have it all figured out you know because when we're watching from the outside we think professional coaches have everything solved right that's why they're there but Mm -hmm. thank you for coming on here and being honest um we went really into depth on you know kind of the the professional game, the biggest differences between the youth, the college and the, and the pro game. And just, just thank you for your time. And um, I'm sure our listeners are really enjoyed this episode. This is great. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for taking the time to listen. Um, We'll make sure to include John's um, email and uh, you know, social media in the description so that way you guys can reach out, but guys, thank you and hope you guys enjoyed this one. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Soccer Cat. Reach out on social media or via email. Let us know who you want to hear from or topics that you'd like to hear about. Thanks for listening. And as always, who will be capped next? <laughs>